So for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the way that we as Jesus followers are called to win in our world today. And as we saw in our series, not in it to win it, we saw that the win for the Jesus follower is not the same thing as the win in politics or the win in our culture that so many of us in the world are striving for. We saw that as Jesus followers, our version of winning is winning the lost to a life-giving, life-transforming relationship with Jesus. And we achieve that by learning to effectively interact with and effectively communicate with the lost. As the Apostle Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, there's a lot of alls in there, so it's very all-encompassing. All things to all people. So that means all people. That means all lost people. No matter why they're lost, no matter what category they belong to, lost people need to know Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. And I started our series a couple weeks ago by saying that it was a message that I didn't want to preach, but a message that because of the divisiveness of our country, that sort of leeching its way into the body of Christ, into the church, I felt like I needed to preach that message. So after each of the messages in that series, that all I'm going to do today is talk about the last series, so, so you know. No, after that, each message in the last series, I tried to get a sense from our people of how it was received. So I talked to everybody I could think of talking to and asking them, what you know, what you think of it? And was that, how that worked for you? I know you're political. I know you're not political, whatever. And I was pleased to learn that just about everybody got what I was getting at. But there was one consistent negative that I kept hearing over and over, and that was that some people felt that the way of Jesus, of which we spoke, was great in theory, but in practice, it was way too passive for our aggressively divided world. Some people felt like they would be giving up too much if, if they just quote, stood by while the other side, whoever that is, came after them and disrespected them or disrespected their views or disrespected their opinions. And that's a common sentiment. It's a sentiment shared by many. Just this week, one of my nephews posted this on social media, be the bigger person sounds too much like accept the disrespect for me. It's interesting how people feel that way, as if it's a personal affront when someone does something and it just gets under your skin and makes you feel bad or makes you think bad things of people. But just because people think something or feel something doesn't mean that it's true. And just because people believe that the message of Jesus and his instructions to his followers and to us is too passive or too wimpy or too weak, it doesn't make it so. In fact, it is flat out wrong. The other reason I want to address this issue now is that it feels like it's becoming more and more relevant in our Christian experience here in the West. And when I say the West, it's North America and then you know, Western Europe, so here in the West. Christians in Africa, Christians in Asia, Christians in the Middle East have been experiencing persecution for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it continues to this day, but Europe had been pretty favorable to Christianity 
from about 312 AD when the Roman Emperor Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And as the nations of Europe became more and more populated, Christianity grew along with the population. And when the European explorers came to the Americas, they brought their various versions of Christianity with them. So even though the United States was established as a secular nation, I know that we always talk about this, and the United States is a Christian nation, all that. Technically, no, it isn't. The United States is a secular nation without an official religion. So even though the United States was established as a secular nation, our founders were people of various Christian faiths or at least Christian-adjacent worldviews, meaning that they didn't profess faith in Christ, but they followed biblical principles and Judeo-Christian ethics and so on. And that made our new nation, America, very Christian-friendly. Indeed, one of the reasons that the United States was established was for the purpose of giving its people religious freedom. The freedom to worship as they wished, the freedom to belong to whatever religious community they wished to belong to, the freedom from having to submit to a government-sponsored religion, a state-sponsored religion. Now, the First Amendment of the Constitution guarantees those rights, but the tide has been turning. For a long time, but clearly for the last 20 years, the anti-Christian sentiment has been growing throughout Europe and throughout Canada and throughout the United States. Listen to this. Earlier this month, Newsweek magazine, which is not a Christian-friendly publication by any means, they ran an article in response to the shooting at Covenant Christian School in Nashville in which six people were killed, three of them being nine-year-old children. And the article highlighted how journalists, columnists, entertainers, and others have directed their anger and their ire toward Christians more than mourning the victims, more than condemning the violence. And instead of offering sympathy and support, a lot of people mocked the Christian faith. And a lot of people even put the blame for these killings on the victims. When you think about that, they blamed the nine-year-old children for their own death. And it's this overt hostility toward Christians that is seeping into society and is becoming more and more out in the open. Last year, The Atlantic magazine published an article saying that the Catholic rosary had become a symbol of religious radicalism. That's pretty wild. Well, the statistics bear out this trend. There have been hundreds of attacks against U.S. churches in recent years, leading to a 173% increase in attacks on churches and attacks on religious people from 2018 to 2022. 173% increase. That's a lot. 2023 has proven no different. In our neighbor to the north, Canada, they just passed legislation. It's called Bill C-4, if you want to look it up. And the legislation says that it is now illegal to spread biblical views on marriage and sexuality. It's illegal. Canadian parents, Canadian faith leaders... Citizens who hold traditional views of marriage and sexuality can now face up to five years in prison for providing spiritual guidance to people coming to them for spiritual guidance. We're not talking about going after people, knocking on doors, screaming to people in the street. We're talking about people coming to somebody for, for assistance, for guidance, for information about a traditional view of marriage. 
you risk going to jail for five years. Here in the United States, a high school football coach named Joe Kennedy was fired from his job because the school district determined that it was inappropriate for students and parents to have to see him take a knee and silently pray for 30 seconds after a football game. And the initial court, the first court that handled the appeal, upheld that ruling. They said, yes, it is illegal. Just actually, just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court reversed that ruling and ordered that Coach Kennedy be reinstated and ordered that the school district pay him almost $2 million for what they did. But poll after poll shows that as a result of the anti-Christian sentiment, the importance of religion in Americans' lives has fallen to new lows. Now, we could spend the rest of our time today doing this, but suffice it to say, you can say, and don't panic, and don't run out and board yourself up or anything like that, but our liberties as Christians is certainly at risk. And before we move on, we do need to note that, that none of the anti-Christian sentiment and actions that we experience in the West, none of it even comes close to the persecution that followers of Christ in other parts of the world experience on a daily basis. So, this is not a, oh no, be afraid, cower, none of that stuff. It is so much worse in other parts of the world. On a daily basis, Christians in other parts of the world are subjected to arrests and beatings and torture and killings. So we don't have it as bad as the rest of the world don't think that we do. But this can be viewed as a canary in the coal mine. This is a warning of things to come if we're not aware now anyway, I brought all this up to let you know why we'll be spending the next few weeks looking at how we, as followers of Jesus, are called to respond to that. And looking how we, as followers of Jesus, can prove that notwithstanding the feeling of some, that the Christian response of love is not, or is not adequate, or is too weak, we're going to talk about how the Christian response of love is not in any way too weak or ill-equipped to address the challenges facing our modern day. Because the truth of the matter is this. There is no movement that is more brave, that is more bold, and that is more powerful than the movement of Jesus in the world. The movement of Jesus changed the world for the better. Jesus was truly tough as nails. And that's why we're calling this series Tough as Nails. So if you would, won't you pray with me, and then we'll dig in. Father God, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for keeping us safe from the weather. Thank you for giving us the freedom that we have to worship and celebrate who you are. God, as we look at your word today, we would ask that you would use it to change our hearts and minds and to draw us closer to you as we seek to minister to the lost here in our area. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The attacks on Christianity have taken place over the last 10 years have made many Christians terrified. And though we're not really feeling it directly right now, it's not a stretch to say that there probably are some rough seas ahead. But instead of surrendering to our worst fears and our worst anxieties and responding as the secular world would respond and behaving as the loud voices from our politicians and our media and our religious leaders have attempted to convince us to behave, as people who take our faith seriously and want to serve 
God with our lives, we need to respond in the way that God has called us to respond. Well, thankfully, Jesus addressed this issue in a way that will equip us to do just that. So, how should we respond? How should we, as Christians, respond to this feeling of anxiety? How should we respond in an environment or a context where where there is actually something to be afraid of? And, there are, and are there valid things to worry about? Like, do we need to worry about some things, and how should we react when we see them? So p- to begin this discussion, we're going to go back to the beginning of the Jesus movement. We're going to go back 2,000 years to the event that everybody is aware of, and it's the event that launched Christianity. It's the event that was horrible, that was miserable, that was unfathomable, but it's also the event that set the standard for all of us who follow Jesus. And even though we talk about it a bit, we just celebrated Easter, because we have it so easy as American Christians, we don't really comprehend just how meaningful that event was. And as things continue to devolve for us over the years ahead, we need to look at that event. It is the event that we'll need to look at for strength and for confidence and for assurance that we have nothing to fear because God has proven to us time and time again that he is more than able to see us through every challenge we might face. So here we go. In the beginning, the founder and author of our faith, the person we sing to, the person we sing about, the person there is artwork depicting, the person we teach our children about, the person in whose name we pray, in the beginning, Our founder, Jesus, who is at the center of everything and all things Christian, Jesus was betrayed by a friend, unjustly arrested, and illegally tried and convicted. And then after that, he was flogged. And he was flogged for the most inexplicable, the weirdest, the dumbest reason one could imagine. Jesus was flogged in order to keep a small group of people happy. That's why he was flogged. We can see it in Mark's gospel. We read Mark 15, 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate, the governor of Judea, the guy who oversaw the trial of Jesus, he was the one who had Jesus flogged. Now, we've all heard this story so many times that we often kind of gloss over it. Jesus was flogged, there's a sentence, it's done, we're past it. And I'm sure that I could come up to people and say, all right, define the word flog for me, and I could probably get a basic definition. But very few of us spend a lot of time really thinking about what flog meant. I've done that for you, and I'm going to tell you. Because to understand where we're going with this, you need to understand what happened. You need to understand what flogging was all about. So, check this out. Now, flogging required a particular skill. Here's what happened during a flogging. Two Roman soldiers, two Roman centurions, who were experts in this method of punishment, would hold a whip called a cat of nine tails, or a cat o' nine tails, all right? Now, that representation is uh, probably the clearest one I could find. A cat of nine tails was a wooden handle, about a foot long, and attached to it were up to nine, hence nine tails, nine leather straps, each of those about six to eight feet long. 
and tied into those leather straps, so knotted into those leather straps, were sharp bits of metal and glass and stone. Now, the goal of flogging, and I'm going to be a little bit graphic here, and I apologize if that's a little bit offensive to hear, but the goal of flogging was to slowly rip, to slowly tear the skin off a person's back and chest and stomach one lash at a time. And in order to maximize the damage, the victim's hands were tied together and then above, fastened to the top of a pole, leaving their entire body exposed and indefensible. Following a flogging, a victim's muscles in their chest and their stomach and their back and their neck and their arms, as well as the bones in their sternum and their ribs and their spine and their shoulders, were laid bare. They were open. You could see them. And they were covered in blood. And they were covered in sweat. And they were covered in pus. And they were covered in dirt. That's what Pilate had done to Jesus to satisfy a crowd. And after that, Jesus was taken back to Pilate's tent called the Praetorium. And there, as Matthew wrote, here's what they did. They stripped Jesus, put a scarlet robe on him, then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Let me stop there. You know when you touch a rose bush or a bougainvillea bush and you get one of those thorns in you and ouch, right? You just touch it. Now imagine one made into a crown and pushed onto Jesus' head. Okay, so spikes go in, blood is drawn, stuff like that. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. And they said, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head with it over and over again. They humiliated him, they beat him, they spit on him, they yelled at him. And if that wasn't enough, then Pilate gave Jesus the maximum sentence. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on and they led him away to crucify him. In other words, they showed Jesus no mercy. And what we may not realize about the crucifixion is that the crucifixion wasn't designed to kill anybody. It was designed to keep a person alive as long as possible to prolong the agony of his death. By design, crucifixion was intended to bring the victim such shame and such pain that anybody who was witnessing the crucifixion would have such fear in their hearts that they wouldn't want to be crucified themselves that they would never dare to cross the Roman Empire. It was really a good way of terrorizing the population, so these people stayed in line. Then in a crucifixion, as you know, a spike was hammered between the bones and the wrists. They, was ha they were hammered there to be able to suspend the weight of the body. And then a spike was hammered through the feet, and then to the cross in order to allow the victim to be able to push up on something to open his lungs and be able to breathe. See, people didn't bleed to death during a crucifixion. The wounds were fairly small. They died by suffocation. Because eventually, hanging there, the body weight pulled them down, kept compressing their lungs until they couldn't draw a breath anymore. And the victims were not hung high in the air like we see the depictions of, but they were hung inches off the ground, mere inches off the ground, so that the perpetrators could look them in the eye, directly in the eye, and mock them all the way to the point of death. Once again, from Matthew. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. So I always used to picture when people walking by hurling insults at Jesus, they're doing this, they're looking up. But they weren't. They're looking right at him. They're right at eye level. And they're hurling insults at him. 
because, because he, he couldn't do anything else. He was lying there gasping, bleeding, and dying, and they're shaking their heads, and they're saying, come down off the cross if you're the son of God. All right, big shot, you're a king. Get yourself off the cross. And then people screamed, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And I'm sorry for bringing all that stuff up and saying it that way, but here's the point. Jesus did not end up in that situation because he was captured trying to run away, trying to flee. Or because he was captured trying to wage a war against the Romans. Nor was Jesus captured as he was trying to escape to the desert to maybe live in the caves in which David hid from King Saul. Nor was Jesus captured in a port city trying to get onto a boat to escape and make his way across the Mediterranean so he could hide out on an island or maybe disappear into the Jewish population in, the, in that Mediterranean region, maybe in Ephesus or Galatia. That's not what happened. Remember what happened? We talked about it Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem intentionally. He did it on purpose in the most conspicuous way possible. He rode in in broad daylight on the back of a donkey to the cheers of a crowd. But Jesus knew exactly what lay ahead for him. He knew he was riding in to die, and he did it anyway. Now, sadly, over time and throughout history, the truth about these things has kind of been obscured by the romanticized art that we've seen and by the writings that we've read that attempt to depict a reverence for Jesus and a respect for Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's admirable, it's admirable, it's understandable, but it left us with sort of an inaccurate picture of Jesus, it left us with an essentially powerless version of a powerful revolutionary, the powerful rev revolutionary in whom we placed our faith. See, time and history have all but neutered our Savior by depicting him as soft and, and harmless. He's just a religious figure. One of the founders of Methodism, Charles Wesley, labeled Jesus in 1742, gentle Jesus meek and mild. You've heard that before if you grew up in the church. That's a children's song. Well, as a result, for generations, when people have thought of Jesus, they've come to believe that there's no way that this soft, gentle surfer guy could have done what Jesus did. But the truth is, our Savior, Jesus, was extraordinarily bold. Consider this. When the temple leaders confronted him, they didn't say to him, what do you think you're doing? They looked into his eyes and they heard him speak, and they asked him, who do you think you are? You see, because Jesus didn't just cause them trouble. Jesus stirred something in their soul, something that intimidated them to their core. They saw something in Jesus, something about his presence, something about his stature, something about his gaze that conveyed ultimate authority. And they felt that in their guts. They just, wow, something's up with this guy. And there's more. Our Savior once walked into the temple and overturned the tables of the powerful money changers. He ran them out of the temple because they were selling sacrificial animals that were substandard, animals that would disgrace and dishonor God. And they were stealing from their own people and getting rich from their own people in the process. And when they confronted him, they could only muster the courage to ask him, by what authority? Are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? Our Savior was bold, and he was fearless, and he was brave, and in the end, he proved to be tougher than nails. And it's this Savior that says to us, follow me. 
This Jesus who says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever, right in front of him, whoever, whoever was nearby listening, whoever, whoever follows him now, which means us, whoever wants to be my follower, whoever wants to be my student must deny themselves. That is, from time to time, you're going to need to say no to you in order to say yes to Jesus. From time to time, there's going to be a conflict between Jesus' will for me and my will for me. And if I've decided to follow Jesus, I need to get into the habit of saying no to me and yes to Jesus. Jesus continued, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. Now this is important. Anyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus must deny themselves and must take up their cross. Now, sadly for us, the word cross evokes a picture of jewelry more than anything. It's what you wear around your neck, right? To us, it's the symbol on the front of the building. Oh, there's a cross on that building. It must be a church. But in the first century, it wasn't about jewelry. The cross didn't remind anybody that the building is a church. It didn't remind anybody of Jesus. In the first century, the cross represented death. And not just death, the most horrible kind of death, as we just heard. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, there's going to come a day, there's going to come a season, there's going to come a set of circumstances where you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me every day single day. You'll have to follow me when it feels safe, and you'll have to follow me when it doesn't feel safe. You'll you'll have to deny yourself and follow me even when you feel like you're not going to get anything out of it. Jesus said you're going to have to follow me when it's practical and helpful, but I'm also calling you to follow me when it's impractical and not helpful. To follow me when it helps you, to follow to follow me when it looks like it's going to hurt you, to follow me when it's going to benefit you, and to follow me when it's going to cost you. And he said that, knowing us completely. Jesus understands our hearts. And Jesus understands our need for security. And Jesus understands the human draw toward, propensity toward security and safety and and risk aversion. And so when he gathered his followers before he was arrested... And before he was ultimately crucified, he would say to them over and over things like this. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus said, don't be afraid of somebody if the worst thing that he or she can do to you is kill your body. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but not kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, Jesus, who walked in broad daylight into Jerusalem, rode into Jerusalem in broad daylight, knowing what was about to happen to him, said, if you want to fear something, fear the one. Fear my heavenly Father, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 
understand this. Fear is unavoidable. Fear is an emotion. Fear takes us by surprise. And Jesus said to us, when fear arises, just remember this. There is something for you to fear. You fear your heavenly Father. But you should never fear anyone who the worst thing they can do to you is destroy your body. Never allow your fear of them to rule your life. This is another example of Jesus' commands being very straightforward and easy to say, but very, very tough to do. Now, Jesus illustrated this situation for them in a very powerful way, and, and we've talked about it before, but it's worth revisiting. If you remember, after spending the day teaching his disciples on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, do you remember when Jesus said to them, let us go over to the other side? And then leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. What happened there? Well, these guys are seafaring guys. These, were, these guys are well acquainted with the Sea of Galilee. They grew up on it. They grew up next to it. They made their living on it. They grew up around boats. They understood boats in and out. They owned boats themselves. So when they got into the boat with Jesus and began to cross the water, they weren't worried about anything. And you remember the story. They got into the boat, and Jesus sort of curled himself up in the back, you know, probably got under a nice blanket and took a little snooze. And then a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, this must have been one heck of a storm because these guys had been in storms before. This is their living. They do this all the time. But it must have looked this time like the boat was going to sink to the bottom and they were all going to drown. So they began to freak out. The disciples woke Jesus, and they whined to him. They, they, you know, the Bible doesn't paint the disciples in a very good light. So they whined. So here's what they said. I'll add the whining. Teacher, don't you care about us if we drown? And like many parents, when their children whined to them, Jesus woke up and he yelled. He rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, be quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And then Jesus turned to them and he goes, what's up with you knuckleheads, translated. Why are you so afraid? And they were like, we don't want to drown. And you have to imagine at that point Jesus went, <sighs> I imagine he did that a lot. And he's like, are you guys paying attention at all? Are you paying attention to anything I've been teaching you? I mean, yeah, I know, it's pretty cool when, when we walk into a place and we receive, like, royalty, and you love that part. You seem to get that part just fine. That's when it's easy to be my disciple. But, fellas, you need to take the good with the bad. If you can trust me when things are going well, why can't you trust me when things aren't going well? That's why Jesus would later add, you don't need to fear anything that can't touch your soul. Jesus finished this story by saying, do you still have no faith? Or as Matthew recorded it, this is the version we're more familiar with, you of little faith. Or if you read your King James Version, ye of little faith. We don't talk about ye anymore unless it's sneakers. After Jesus calmed the sea, verse 41, the disciples were terrified and they asked each other, who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It was it's as if during that boat ride, Jesus was saying to them the same thing that he would later say to them in the Matthew passage that we began with. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both 
soul, and body in hell. In other words, if you're going to be afraid, fear God. When fear starts to overwhelm you, you need to remind yourself you are not to succumb to. You're not to say yes to. You're not to submit yourself to the fear of anything that can only touch the body. Because your ultimate allegiance and your ultimate fear is in God who controls both body and soul. If you're going to be afraid of anyone, be afraid of God. Fear God. And in the meantime, I want you to follow me, Jesus said. Now, for some of you, this is extremely relevant today, right here, right now. Because you're going through something and you're hearing me say, don't be afraid, trust God. But for some of you, maybe everything's going really well right now. Maybe you're really excited in the way God's been answering your prayers and your job's going great and your school's going great, your life's going great, and all your prayers in Jesus' name have been answered and you're like, this Jesus thing is awesome. Maybe you're going to need to tuck this lesson away for later. Because here's an unavoidable truth. Uncertainty is unavoidable. And I know a lot of us like to try to control things and keep things under control and under wraps and like to pay attention to all the stuff and make sure everybody's doing okay and all this. Listen, I'm there. Uncertainty is unavoidable, though. You're not going to be able to control it. Uncertainty is for certain. The only thing certain in life is uncertainty. But here's the message of Jesus for every Jesus follower. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but being fearful is optional. Fear isn't optional. We're humans. We can't control when fear crops up. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. But living a fearful life, submitting to fear, being fearful is always optional. And Jesus proved it in his life and in his death, and that's why we're talking about it today. And it wasn't just Jesus. The Apostle Paul remember, who brought us close to half of the New Testament, he was persecuted and arrested and actually stoned and left for dead. But when Paul woke up from being knocked out, he brushed himself off, he found his friends, and he continued on his way. He didn't give up his cause because he was afraid. Throughout his life, Paul continued to plant churches all around the Mediterranean Rim. Paul was fearless because he'd learned the secret. That uncertainty is a constant, but we don't have to give in to fear. We don't have to live fearfully because as followers of Jesus, our fear is focused on the only one who has anything to do with the destination of our souls for eternity. Now, one of the most powerful scenes in the whole New Testament is found in Acts 21 and then goes into 22. And there, there was a group of people who were begging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, because if you go, you're going to be arrested when you get there. Well, Paul responded to them by saying this in Acts 21, 13, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's courage. That's the courage of a man who understood. We need not fear anyone or anything that can only touch the body, but not the soul. So Paul went to Jerusalem. He was arrested. But then he claimed Roman citizenship, which changed the laws. They didn't know what to do with him at that point. So they sent him to the emperor, and it was Emperor Nero. And in Rome, Paul spent a long time in prison waiting for his sentence. Eventually, Rome would have him executed. 
But while Paul was in prison, what did he do? He wrote letters, some of which would become part of the New Testament. See, Paul was a man who got it. Paul was a man who understood that there was no need to fear anyone or anything that could only harm his body but couldn't touch his soul. And now think about this. After 2,000 years, there's no more temple in Jerusalem. There's no more Roman Empire. But Paul's words are read every single day in hundreds of languages by people all over the world. After the death of Paul and Peter and the others, the Jesus movement didn't die. It continued to grow, even though the persecution continued. In the late 100s AD, there was a Roman doctor. His name was Claudius Galenus. Dr. Galenus was responsible for going into the Colosseum after the Christians had been attacked by the wild animals and killed by the wild animals, all for the entertainment of the crowd. And he had to examine the bodies. That was his job. And in one of his writings that survived to this day, it survived antiquity, here's what Dr. Galenus said about the Christians. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. Every day we see their fearlessness of death. This was an observation of a pagan Roman doctor. Those Christians understood it too. Uncertainty is certain. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but they learn to live without being overwhelmed by fear. And there's more. Every time you pick up an English Bible, you need to remember that the first translation of the English Bible from the original Greek and the original Hebrew was done by a man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale in his day was considered an outlaw by the religious community because he dared to do something unheard of. Tyndale decided that the English people needed a translation of the Bible that they could read on their own. So he translated the entire Bible from the Hebrew and the Greek into English. And it's his translation, Tyndale's translation, that would eventually become the basis for the King James Bible, which was published in 1611 and made its way all around the world and is still used by many today. What happened to Tyndale? Well, Tyndale was arrested for his translation. And he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. And while he was tied to the stake, they couldn't wait for the burning, so they strangled him to death first. And then they burned his body for good measure. But Tyndale was fearless. He knew that he didn't need to give in to fear. And after his execution, the King of England made Tyndale's English Bible the official Bible of England. Now, all of this leads us to three questions, and that's what we're going to end on today. So here's the first question. Is your version of Christianity worth all of that? Is the way that you live out your Christian life worth all of that? Is the way that you pray, is the way that you gather together with others, is the way that you give and worship, is the way that you sing and praise, is the way that you stand against our divided culture worth everything it took to get Christianity to where we are in the 21st century? Would those people look at you and go, good job, I'm proud of you? That's question one. Question two, is your version of Christianity worth dying for? Now before we answer, know that by God's grace, the probability of any of us having to die for our Christian faith is very low. It's pretty improbable. It's, not, it's just not going to happen to us really, and thank God for that. But is your version of Christianity worth dying for? 
Because in our world today, Christians are dying for a version of Christianity that looks a lot like the Christianity of the first and second century. You read about that all the time. Christians in the Middle East, Christians in Africa, Christians in, in Asia, Christians dying for the faith. Are we as serious as they are? Are we denying ourselves when it comes down to choosing between what we want and what our Savior wants? Is your version of Christianity worth dying for? Final question, is the way that we live worth the price that they paid? If Paul and Peter and the others looked at our lives as followers of Jesus, would they be scratching their heads going, what are you guys doing? You're afraid of what? You're worried about what? If the Christians in Iraq or Syria or Pakistan or China or parts of Africa today were looking at our version of Christianity, what would they say? Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad or to make you feel guilty, but I'm saying this so we can start looking at these questions so that in the future, if we're forced to answer for ourselves, we need to know the answer. We need to know who we are. We need to know how firmly we stand for God. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but being fearful is an option. So let's together learn to opt for something better. And when that fear starts whispering, let's develop the habit of saying, mm -mm, not listening, fear, I'm a Christian. I follow a man who rode into Jerusalem and embraced death for me on my behalf. I follow a man who conquered death on behalf of the entire world. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to build on this theme, and I know it's kind of heavy, and I promise it won't be as heavy as we go on, but we need to figure out how to navigate through the uncertainty that we feel in life, through the fear that we feel in life. But the good news is we can do it because Jesus has already done it for us, and he showed us the way forward. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for those who've gathered together in the past, who bore the risk to gather publicly in your name. Please reveal to us what you want us to do with what we've heard. And Father, I pray that in the days and years to come, that those of us who claim to be your followers would figure all this out, and that we would live bold, fearless lives, not because things got more certain, but because we've learned to say no to fear of the world, and we've learned to fear the only one who controls the destiny of the soul. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.